Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we pivot to the future. On today's show, we ask you to take us with you on election day. If you're heading out to vote in person today, here are some basic rights to keep in mind courtesy of the ACLU. If the polls close while you're still in line, stay in line. You have the right to vote. If you make a mistake on your ballot, ask for a new one. If the machines are down at your polling place, ask for a paper ballot. If you need assistance, if you run into any problems, or if you have any questions today, call the Election Protection Hotline. For English, that's call 866-OUR-VOTE. That's 866-687-8683. For Spanish, call 1-88-839-8682. For Arabic, call 1-844- 925-5287. And for Bengali, Cantonese, Hindi, Urdu, Korean, Mandarin, Tagalog, or Vietnamese, call 1-888-274-8683. While you do your part to get out to vote today, we are here to answer some of your most pressing questions and to have a bit of fun. What have the last four years meant for our democracy? What does the presidential race in other state and local elections mean for the future of our democracy? What can we expect if the Senate flips? Helping us to sort out these questions and how we should think about these issues and more are very special guests. I'm joined by Senator Russ Feingold. He is the president of the American Constitution Society. He served as a United States Senator from Wisconsin and a Wisconsin State Senator. He is the author of While America Sleeps, a wake-up call for the post 9-11 era, and he contributes regularly to various publications and appears frequently on MSNBC and CNN. I'm also joined by Liz Weinstead. She is co-creator and former head writer of The Daily Show and Air America Radio co-founder. She now dedicates her life not only to important comedic commentary, but also forging new ground as the founder of the Abortion Access Front, a New York City-based reproductive rights organization that she launched in 2015, which uses humor and outrage to expose anti-choice hypocrisy and to mobilize people across all 50 states. And finally, I'm also joined by Sandra Bernhard. She is a professor former actress, singer, and author. She is the host of the hugely popular Sandy Land, her daily radio show on Sirius XM Radio's Andy Channel 102, for which she won a Gracie Award. A pioneer of the one-woman show, Barnhart brings a completely unique and raucous mix of cabaret, stand-up, rock and roll, and social commentary to the stage. She is currently starring as Nurse Judy in one of my favorite shows, Pose, which is the Emmy-nominated and Peabody Award-winning show on FX Networks. Thank you all so much for being on the show today. We know that people are going to be in long lines today. They already are, so I couldn't be happier that you are with us as we encourage people and inspire people 
to exercise their rights to vote and to stay in those lines. So I want to hear first about when did you first vote? So let me start with you, Liz. Do you remember the first time you voted? I do. I, the first time I voted was for president, you mean? Oh, good question, Liz. Right back at me. Yeah, so fundamental to our democracy is more than just the presidency, right? I mean, it's also people running for the Senate, people running for the House, people running for governorships in state legislatures, even for elected judicial offices at the state level, and also at the local level, school boards and city councils. And let me just say, in Vermont, there are people who are still electing the dog catcher. But why don't we start with the president? When was the first time that you voted for a president? So the first time I voted was 1980 and as a snotty kid participated in, um, in, in by voting for John Anderson. I was disenfranchised. I was disillusioned with both P I was disillusioned with Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. So I voted for John Anderson for president that I remember. Okay. And, and, and what about you, Russ? Um, you know, I voted even earlier than that, but I do want you to know we now have two votes for John Anderson. I was, foolish. I was foolish enough to do the same darn thing. Uh, but eight years earlier, at age 19, a sophomore at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, my first vote was for president for George McGovern, who won exactly one state. And so there were bumper stickers all over the country shortly thereafter that said, don't blame me, I'm from Massachusetts, which is hard to fix you know, on a bumper sticker. The only state that voted Form, not even his own state of South Dakota, but that was my first vote, Michelle. Look at that. I, I love this. And what about you, Sandy? And she's allowed me to call her Sandy. Okay, thank you, Sandra. <laughs> Absolutely. I, 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 I'm pretty sure, and I, I'm, I'm sorry that I don't have a more um, specific memory, but it had to have been Jimmy Carter. Did, was that 1976? Okay, so that means I would have been 21. Um, that had to be the first time I voted for, for anybody was Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. And what did the feeling, did you recall the feeling that you had when you were casting no. your first vote? No, no. <laughs> I don't have any, I had more feeling when I was 13, when Robert Kennedy was running, of course I couldn't vote then. I had more feeling when I was eight years old, when John Kennedy was assassinated. You know, my, my really first strong political memories are all sort of tragic because it was John Kennedy who was incredible. And then, and then Bobby and then Martin Luther King. And, you know, those were my formative political years. I was a, a, a little kid and then I was a teenager. And, you know, my brothers all managed to get out of going to fight in the Vietnam War, rock on. My brother David was the secretary of the SDS on campus at Arizona State University. Wow. I mean, I have all these incredible earlier memories. I, I mean, I submitted a, a story to Ms. Magazine when I was 16 and got rejected. I love that. These are my early memories. So when I actually went to vote, I think it was not as, as exciting or as impref impressive because I, mean, I, I happen to think Jimmy Carter is one of the most unheralded presidents of all times. I mean, this is a man who literally took a vow, he and his wife took a vow of poverty and continue to live like, I mean, I don't think they can travel anymore, but you know, they traveled around the world, you know, um, building houses for human, you know, Habitat for Humanity. They've done so much and they have asked for nothing. And I just think, why isn't everybody just applauding and celebrating Jimmy Carter? 
every day of the week. Okay, so, so actually, before I get to some other questions, let's actually spend a moment on that because Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg recently passed away and he was the president that actually put, gave her her first judicial seat on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. And she wasn't the first woman that he nominated. He actually broke through all sorts of ranks with placing six women on the federal courts of appeals. And that was huge because they had never been there before, right? I mean, he broke all of that ground. And we're talking about, you know, that being 40 years ago. So why is it that Jimmy Carter isn't heralded uh, for all that he did, also with some of the first Black people and people of color ever to, you know, serve on the federal bench in the United States? How come people don't think about him in that way? I personally think it's because he wasn't glamorous enough. And I think that he didn't elicit that sort of excitement and, you know, joie de vie. And I think that's the problem with America right now. We're so caught up in this, you know, phony uh, drama of, of Trump and his, and his spectacle that we, I mean, not us, but so much of America, it's just that this is what they've been spoon fed for the past 20 years with reality television. So they can't even, they can't even parse or separate in their own minds what is their actual life and needs from the, the, the adrenaline and the, the excitement of, of somebody who's a total fucking, a total runaway train. See, I edited myself. <laughs> Liz and, and Russ, you're both nodding to this. Yeah, because I, have, I haven't given them a word in ed, edgewise. Sorry, you guys. Now you talk. I'll be quiet. Hey, look, it is absolutely essential that you give credit to what Jimmy Carter did. You know, I've only been president of this American Constitution Society for eight months, but it's hardly a week that goes by that somebody doesn't recognize what Carter did in terms of judicial appointments. And even though I worked closely with and served with President Clinton and President Obama, the fact is those administrations didn't give the focus to filling those judgeships in the way that Carter did, particularly with the diversity you talked about. So that's an ideal that we should live up to. And I, I'm glad this is coming to light. I'm glad he's still around to hear this uh, because, you know, he, was, he wasn't a lawyer. You know, here's a guy who, who simply made it his business to understand the importance of the judiciary. And, you know, finally, I think we're getting it because of Ruth, uh, how important this is and what's just happened. But, you know, the progressives have sort of fallen behind in this one. And we need to fix that, especially if there's a change in administration. Yeah, he was a peanut farmer. Liz, what were you going to say? I just have to say, I pulled this out. You guys can't see it. It's Jimmy Carter. <gasps> I wear a Jimmy Carter medal around my neck. Look at that. Um, <laughs> as inspiration. I'm a Minnesotan, born and raised, live in Brooklyn, New York now, and Minnesota both. Conservative parents. My dad was a Reagan Republican, World War II vet, 1st Marine Division, Guadalcanal, from Mississippi. Met my mom in D.C. Um, so growing up in Minnesota with very progressive surroundings, very conservative home life, Youngest of five kids, I like you, Sandy, my brother avoided Vietnam, but really had this um, progressive Catholicism, thank God, in my life. And so for me, and it goes to Russ's point that the Democrats have missed it. To me, I, when I look at the fundamentals of why I am who I am and why I have the political philosophy, is that I want to answer the call because I understand that this is my democracy. And so when I answer the call and I'm an active human in it, 
I feel rewarded. I feel like I'm doing my part. I feel like I am seeing things I wouldn't see. And I don't need someone to take care of me. I'll never forget watching um, George Bush driving around in his golf cart on his ranch versus John Kerry on a windsurfer and thinking, even though I am not a George Bush person at all, that seems more interesting and relatable to me than John Kerry. Like, what are, what are you asking of me? I don't want someone to tell me they're going to take care of me. I want someone to tell me what can I do to make the world I live in better for the people around me. And Jimmy Carter, to me, um, embodied that. Here's what we can do to make the world better. I don't live in a cave. I, don't, I live in a community, and I have a pact with my community to, if we're talking about right now, wear a mask, make sure you can eat, make sure you don't live in the street, make sure that if I am engaging in a world that I am not harming those around me, like things that are just things that people do because you are a human being. I love that. I love that. So then what, what does this election mean to you, especially given the efforts that you each have been made, making over time. Sandy, your work on HIV and AIDS and in gay communities. Liz, you've been working on abortion uh, issues. You're the founder of the Abortion Access Front. Russ, you're now in the space of the American Constitution Society. I mean, each of you, not just in the, in the areas in which you've been known for, you also have been committed to issues outside of what people know you for. So why is this election so important to you and to our country? I'll start with you, Sandy. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and say that I, I still am stunned that we didn't elect Hillary Clinton to the presidency. I think she was overqualified. I think she was an incredible statesperson. I'm sorry that she had quote unquote baggage. And it again, reflects to me the unsophistication and underdevelopment of the intellect and the, the imagination of the American public. So putting that aside, I feel that we are at, we're at the tipping point. We're over the edge. It's just, it's just, it's complete and utter insanity. I don't want to be redundant. We all know why this election is everything. Uh, it's just, for me, I have my, my daughter is 22 years old. I want her to have health insurance. I want her to be able to have an abortion if she chooses to have one. I want her to have a job that she loves and in a safe environment. And I want to continue to travel and do my work in, in, in a way that is reflective of our democracy. And all of these things are on the line. And I'm not going to beat people over the head with the obvious. We all know it, but that's what is moving me every minute of the day right now. I guess I'll kick in here as the elder on the call and, and speak in terms of, uh, you know, they talk about the greatest generation, the World War II generation. Well, we had an idea that we were going to be a pretty good generation. Uh, I'm not saying we did everything right, but this election seems like the last chance. Um, basically, we got screwed. Uh, Sandy said, pointed out, bullets took away three of our most wonderful leaders of our lifetime. Then we got screwed out of a presidency in 2000. Then we got screwed out of another presidency in 2016. All of these were illegitimate things that completely altered the course of history of the last 50 or 60 years. And so, you know, I'm a happy guy. I've had a great life. I've enjoyed everything about it. But if I look at that, I go, 
you know, we weren't exactly lucky. And now we need a little luck. I, of course, my organization doesn't take a position about who should win the election. All I'm saying is that somehow we've got to get back not only to preserving the rule of law, which is critical, but something that a, a student at Howard University said to me on my first day on the job, she said, Russ, um, for many of us in our communities, the law doesn't make us comfortable. You know, talking about the rule of law is not like something good always, because returning to an old rule of law with its racist and other implications is not the way to go. We need a rule of law that actually allows our diverse country to go forward. So for me, that's what's at stake in this election. And I would just jump on um, Russ's, uh, both of what Russ and Sandy said are great, but when we talk about the illegitimacy of the president, we now have an illegitimate high court. And to look at how, uh, you know, this language and gaslighting that we have been handed that Democrats want to stack the court. You know, the lower courts were stacked. We have 200 people that were stacked onto that court and forced in. Amy Coney Barrett forced in. You know, we, we now have a situation where um, we have a activist court. I don't even understand originalism because I don't understand how, how it even, how, how you live in a world where you say, this is the way it was and this is the way it is and we're going to rule on that when and you weren't even there and you weren't even there right and so it's it's it all seems like uh what my goal is as a reproductive rights advocate and and somebody who started my advocacy realizing that the progressive movement and democrats checked out on midterm elections checked out on what exactly it is that state and local government does and how powerful they are. And as we sit and think about reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, over-policing, um, prison, all of the things that come out of our state legislatures that we all have to advocate and do everything in our powers to make sure that crackpots don't get elected because the second they do and they pass laws that are wackadoodle those wackadoodle laws go through a court system that's going to say, yeah, that seems legitimate to me, and it's not. So our jobs, all of us, in thinking about this is how do we make sure we educate people on state and local government? How do we make sure that people are paying attention to the issues they care about and making sure that, because sometimes they're not going to front lead with, guess what, I'm a white supremacist, people. They're not necessarily going to lead with that. So... Yeah, typically not, typically right? Typically, so no. David sure Duke, yes, but typically, and no. Out and exposing that and not allowing the Lincoln Project because they didn't like this kind of Republican. By the way, I'm just going to say it. They, um, they are people who would like to have a Republican brand that gave us Donald Trump, not Donald Trump. Donald Trump says the quiet things out loud. Right. So I'm glad they're working really hard to expose Donald Trump, the creep. But when you go back and lay back and say, but we do like a John Kasich. We're fine with a Rick Santorum. We were really great with a Tom Cotton. It's like, whoa, no, 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 no. We need to have our own Lincoln Project. And that's what we do at Abortion Access Front is that we were never Republicans, but we will drag people for filth who we think are disingenuous, humorless, terrible for the nation. That's what we do. And on election day, I'm super excited to say that we have a 12 hour marathon 
live comedy show at Abortion Access Front streaming on all of our channels. So for those who are in line all day, you can have your phone up and watch some of the greatest comedians just Yay! telling jokes from yes. noon until midnight at uh, aafront.org, all the places. It's going to be fun. Yes, we want to keep people in line. So stay in line. Voting today is really, really important. And Liz, I want to tie into something important that you were talking about, and that is our political parties, Republicans. And I just think about the times in which there were Republicans who did some really heroic and important work. I think about Justice William Joseph Brennan. I mean, what a fabulous justice he was, a real civil rights warrior, civil libertarian warrior in all of the right ways. When Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was going through her confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court, the two justices that she mentioned the most, Thurgood Marshall and also William Brennan, and I think about Roe v. Wade, a seven to two opinion, and of those seven justices, five were Republicans. In fact, Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion in Roe v. Wade, was Republican appointed. He was appointed by Richard Nixon. So what explains the differences that we are seeing today? Well, you know, it's sad because the one thing we remember um, about the court, even when we were young, is that we had this sense that it was kind of a legitimate institution, that everything wasn't decided in advance and that people weren't uh, basically forced to go through a litmus test on abortion or, or same-sex marriage before they became judges. And we were always so excited when somebody uh, like Chief Justice Warren or Justice Brennan proved to be uh, actually more liberal than a Republican might have wanted, and vice versa. You know, John F. Kennedy appointed Wizard White former football star, and people were disappointed that he was too conservative. But the reality is, is people thought, wait, wait a minute, this group is on the level. Apparently, these nine people talk to each other, and they haven't decided the case in advance. I remember I managed to win re-election in 2004, even when George Bush won Wisconsin. I was very proud of that. But I said to people, I said to people, why, why did you vote for me? And they said, because we never knew what you were going to do. In other words, not that I was crazy, hopefully, but that, that, that maybe I would look at the issue at the moment. That's what the court used to be. Well, the right wing in this country didn't like that. So they, in 1980, created the Federalist Society that basically requires, uh, for being in the good graces of the Federalist Society, you have to agree to these you know, anti-abortion, anti-gay marriage, uh, you know, pro, totally pro-corporate, big interest agenda. And so, as, as Liz said, this Supreme Court is no longer on the level. It's not legitimate anymore. And, and that is because of that process that, that the Republicans, they're even mad about John Roberts. They thought they had vetted him, but apparently uh, he, wasn't, he isn't conservative enough for them, which is pretty crazy. So let's think about Chief Justice John Roberts for a moment. So he cast some decisive votes over this past year's Supreme Court term, June Medical being one, the case in which he joins with the liberals on the court to strike down a Louisiana anti-abortion law, joining again with the liberals in Bostock v. Clayton County, expanding employment protections for LGBT employees. And then he joins the liberals again uh, in the DACA decision. But what's interesting is that in the face of these decisions, he also drew the ire of conservatives, including Vice President Michael Pence, who claimed that uh, John Roberts had uh, disappointed 
conservatives and he singled out the ruling in June Medical. But there were also others like Ted Cruz who accused the Chief Justice of abandoning, quote, his oath of office. Um, there were others, this is Mike Pence, saying that uh, John Roberts and what he did should be a wake-up call for pro-life voters around the country um, so that they actually understand that the Supreme Court is on the ballot. Um, there were others who said that he should actually repent for what he did, and he was even called a national disgrace by other Republicans. So how do we understand that? Well, and I think to me, like another reason that I do not adhere to the philosophy of these people calling for him to come down is because the one thing the Republican Party is, is if you can rely on constantly, is being short-sighted. You know, the way that they give tax breaks for the rich, the way they do all this stuff, there's never any long-term plan. It's always like, how do I benefit anything immediately and satiate myself? And the thing that's super interesting about John Roberts on the June medical case, which was an abortion case, is uh, they had ruled on the exact same case three years earlier. Not a word had changed. Same case comes up, right? So John Roberts said, this isn't the right case because we just ruled on it. Bring me another case and we'll shut this down for you. But what did they hear? You didn't do it right now. So progressives should be terrified. He's not our boyfriend. He's like, not, he's not helping. He's actually saying, I'm in it for the long game. If you really want this stuff to really permeate into the fabric of society, you should be listening to me. Progressives are sort of right wing isn't really. So I fear that John Roberts is one of those people that might fall through the cracks as this somebody who's really thinking about things moderately when really he's just looking at a long game for this conservative oppression that none of us, I think, want to live in. So I'm wondering right now, as people are in these long lines, Russ, how did we get here? How do we get to a point in this democracy where people have to wait five hours, six hours, seven hours in the middle of a pandemic in order to be able to vote? How did we get here in your home state of Wisconsin? And I was born there too. And Liz went to a Halloween party there one time. How did we get to this Point where in the middle of COVID, you've got these high rates of infection and death amongst Black people in Wisconsin, and the Supreme Court seemingly, according to some, is just given short shrift to all of that. Let me first answer by saying something that I'll repeat, if you like, and, and that is if people are in line right now and they're having a problem, they should call 866-OUR-VOTE, which is an election protection line, and we'll have volunteers ready to help you if you're having that problem. So how did this happen? Well, I'll tell you, it's completely confusing to me based on the fact that elections seem very clean in Wisconsin right up till about 2011. We didn't have Republicans or Democrats messing around with poll workers or trying to force people to have uh, identification cards or shutting down polling places. There was a consensus that you don't mess around with this. Well, in 2010, the Tea Party came in and all of a sudden, they uh, figured out that they could come to Wisconsin with our governor, Scott Walker, and hand him an agenda from this ALEC group and from the Koch brothers, which involved gutting the voting rights of the people of Wisconsin. And they did it very successfully with a you know, conservative majority in, in both houses of the legislature and the governor, as well as destroying our, our labor laws of the state. So 
we were one of the first states where they did this, and it's been growing ever since, uh, buffeted by, of course, as you know, Michelle, the horrible decision in Shelby County, which basically was a green light. To, hey, go ahead. You know, we grew up thinking that they denied uh, African-Americans a vote in the South. Well, all of a sudden, right in the middle of Wisconsin, African-Americans are being told on election day in April, well, you can go and get COVID um, and stand in line uh, at only six out of 105 polling places that were supposed to be there. So it's a, a terrible shift that was driven by the billionaires in this country uh, that do not like the fact that the real majority of this people should be running this country. They want a minority rule by uh, people that don't represent the diverse nature of the United States of America. And you said six out of 105 polling places. Yeah, they shut the, the, yeah they, and, and of course in Texas, the governor down there has said there's only one drop box per county, including Harris County, Houston, I understand. <laughs> one drop box. And you just simply can't make that up. And that's in 2020. And we're not talking about 1820. So Sandy, as a fan of your work, and also in research for the show, as I look back from your interviews with Arsenio Hall, David Letterman, your comedic stand-up, your recent interviews, and one of the things that I see in common across all of the years has been your commitment to social justice, standing up for homeless folks, standing up for women, standing up for folks who experience HIV and AIDS. In fact, in looking back at one of the Arsenio Hall shows on there, you were talking about George Bush one, not doing enough to protect people who were dying from AIDS. And you spent a lot of time talking about how important that was. So you've always been standing up. And as we think about this election at this time, it's really not just the White House that happens to be at stake. And I know that you've been doing a lot of work on the ground about down ballot races like the Senate. So tell us a bit about that work and why it's so important to you. Well, I mean, I think I think without the Senate this time, I mean, obviously, it's just going to this is just going to keep going on and on and on. We've got to flip the Senate. And there's so many viable people. There's, you know, there's Jamie Harrison, there's, there's, you know, Mark Kelly, um, there's uh, Cal Cunningham. There are, there's just, there's an endless list of very good people. And I feel, I mean, I feel good about it. I don't know, you know, if, unless you're on the, on the ground in different states, you can't always tell exactly what's going on, but certainly the word is good. And that's you know that's that's the key right now we've got to get back the senate and hold the house and for people who are wondering about that um because a lot of people don't know and they see this as just it's really just about the presidency and and it's clear that a president has an enormous impact on a nation right we've come out of four years children being put in cages muslim ban all all sorts of things so clearly that's an important office but when you think about the senate and the role of what the Senate can do. Maybe, Rush, you can fill us in just a little bit about why that's such a critical space within our democracy. Well, first of all, it, you know, it's every single nomination uh, under the Constitution of any significant office, whether it's a judgeship or whether it's any major administration position, every single one has to get a majority vote in the United States Senate. And that's very unusual. Most systems of government don't have this. And, the founders of our country thought, well, it would be good to have this kind of check and balance, but it means it's absolutely critical if a new administration is uh, going to get anywhere. The other thing is this is, is legislation. You know, there's a lot of talk about maybe reforming the courts. 
Maybe they should, uh, some people think we should add some new justices. Some people think maybe we should limit the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. All those ideas are out there, and many of them can be done by legislation. Now, it wouldn't be hard to get some of that potentially through the House, but in the Senate, you still have the filibuster. And so you might get a majority in the Senate, but if you don't have 60 votes on a bill like that, unless you change the filibuster rule, it still can be the place where legislation goes to die. And what's a filibuster for those who don't know what filibustering is? Well, filibuster, people think based on the, the, the movies in history, it used to be the idea that somebody would get the floor of the Senate and you, you can hold the floor as long as you can stand it. So Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, you know, famously talks until he collapses. That, that, that's the old romantic notion of filibuster. But the filibuster really is a combined effort to kill a bill uh, by talking, constantly talking. This is how the Southern senators prevented the Civil Rights Act from passing for many years until Lyndon Johnson uh, forced it through. But it has become, instead of just something that's done occasionally or on behalf of your state, it's now become a routine practice where the rules were set up recently uh, in 20 or 30 years ago where you don't even have to talk. You just say, I want to do a filibuster. And so it kills all kinds of legislation. So you don't even have to be dramatic. No. In fact, they, they, it, it's really terrible. Now, what, what Senator Reid did uh, when he was in the majority a few years ago is he eliminated the filibuster for nominations, uh, for everything but the Supreme Court, and then McConnell eliminated for Supreme Court. So that's now just majority, uh, but legislation is still uh, 60 votes for most kinds of legislation, not all legislation. All right. So this brings me to something that's a, a critical point right now. There's a lot of talk about reproductive health rights and justice. As Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away, of course, she was a valiant warrior on all sorts of civil liberties and civil rights issues. But many people associate her with reproductive health rights and justice um, and also with sex equality. She has recently passed away. Uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett has now been confirmed by the Senate and has also been sworn in by Justice Thomas and also Chief Justice Roberts. I wanna spend some time thinking about what reproductive health rights and justice mean. And I wanna to turn to you, Liz, because you know, people know you as a comedian, as somebody who, you know, really pushes the envelope and helps people to think about issues in a nuanced way that brings humor. But a lot of people may not know that you've also committed your life, your passion, your work to also expanding access to reproductive rights and that you've taken, you've taken this on, you know, in, in just the most sophisticated and strong way. And you've got a lot of people with you. So I'm wondering why you um, have turned to this when, you know, you could be doing anything else, but you're now making inroads here. I think part of it is that it's an issue that is often forgotten, which is massively frustrating. Um, the media doesn't talk about it enough. Uh, I think oftentimes our friends who are uh, quote unquote pro-choice um, have been um, even said, you know, it's a, abortion's a wedge issue and, you know, we can make compromises on it. And I think that for me, um, helping try to center what it means for somebody to have every avenue of self-determination and for so many people and for most women and people that have uteruses, that is 
making the fundamental decision of when and if you want to have a child and your capability to do so. And if we don't focus on making sure that that path is clear, we are saying that you are a second class citizen and we and you your rights to that can be put into the hands of the government. And for me that is just I can't stand on that. And and oftentimes we couch it in row or we couch it when there is a crisis that is happening, whether it's the person replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an anti-abortion activist, as well as now the Supreme Court judge, you know, whether there is legislation in some states that are putting, you know, all, all out bans. Um, we need to constantly, I'm trying to reframe it so that we're having the conversation all the time and that it's living in the landscape of things we care about and that we are talking about the destigmatization of abortion, why people have it, centering, um, you know, marginalized people, black and brown people, people of color who really are the ones who suffer the most from having stripped of agency over their own bodies and their decisions to when and if they want to have kids. Because when we talk about abortion access, um, Truth be told, we need to become a country that says we will honor all pregnancy outcomes. If you are a poor person who's pregnant and wants to have a child, we should be a country that says we want to make sure that we provide every avenue we can to make sure that you have a healthy family. And that you if, don't die in the process. And that you don't die in the process. If you are somebody who gets pregnant and says, I cannot have another child or I am not capable of doing so, we should be able to, we should honor that person's decision to understand who they are and how they would be. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that when the COVID, when the pandemic hit, one of the first things that eight, nine governors did in conservative states was to say, we're going to shut down access to abortion in these clinics because abortion is not an essential service. And I cannot tell you how many calls and emails we got from people saying, I am pregnant, I'm, I'm housing insecure, I'm job insecure, I am living with my abuser and I found myself pregnant, help me get access to what I need. And so, you know, Adam Sir, the great journalist, has often said about um, where we're at, the cruelty is the point. And I really do believe oftentimes that the cruelty is the point. And so bringing people back into this conversation, helping progressives, um, who have been passively pro-choice to say, you know what, maybe I'm going to take another look and have more conversations so that I can expand how I do my activism to include making sure that access to reproductive care is available. Because if we don't, we are literally giving over somebody else's rights to the government. And that means that you are saying that women are less than as citizens. And I just don't, I just can't let that stand. Well, you know, and to your point, as, as you say that, I think about in those very same states that sought to roll back uh, abortion access during COVID are the states where it's the deadliest for people to maintain their pregnancies, right? I mean, the United States ranks 50th, 51st in the world in terms of maternal mortality. It's actually safer to have a pregnancy in Bosnia a former genocidal war-torn country than in the United States. Saudi Arabia was actually safer to have a pregnancy and carry it to term in Saudi Arabia than it is in the United States. And Texas and Louisiana go back and forth as being the deadliest places in the developed world for a person to be pregnant. 
So that's all really important. So I get exactly why you're in the fight. So how did we get here? Liz, do you, were you feeling this same way 20 years ago, 25 years ago? Did you feel the urgency of this as you feel it now? Well, you know, I'm going to try to not get too wonky. Uh, Too wonky. It's all right. (laughs) You know, know, 20 years ago, it was, uh, we were at a place where I think that when people talk about the larger picture of abortion access, um, and we think about Roe v. Wade, I think that people need to educate themselves on a Supreme Court case that's called Planned Parenthood v. Casey that came out of Pennsylvania. And it was that Supreme Court ruling where the state of Pennsylvania said, okay, fine, abortion, but we think the state should be able to put uh, caveats and restrictions on it. And the Supreme Court said that that's fine. We'll hold up the tenets of Roe v. Wade, but states can, can put restrictions as long as there's not a quote, and this is huge, an undue burden. And they never defined what an undue burden was. And ever since that Supreme Court ruling happened, we have seen these states create barrier after barrier after barrier. And by when 2010 happened, and and we go back to 2010 because Russ brought it up, it was when the uprising happened in Madison with labor laws. Uh, You know, it was the, uh, there's a group that's called um, the um, AUL, Americans United for Life. And they're kind of like ALEC, uh, which is the American legislative, blah, blah, I can't remember what it stands for, but they, they create these packages of laws and they drop them into state legislatures. So they created this big bulky law um, and gave it to like-minded state legislatures. And they got 27 states passed omnibus abort, the same omnibus abortion bill and clinics shuttered down instantly. That same year, we saw so many LGBT um, constitutional amendments on ballots. And that same year, was the year that the Tea Party came in, right? So the Tea Party came in and all this stuff started happening. So the reason we got here was because in 2010, America was like, we've had two years of a black president. Turns out we're kind of racist and kind of hate a lot of stuff. And so we're going to get people in and we're going to start shifting the balance of power to this very extended white supremacist viewpoint. And here we are. That's my take. All right, so so let's talk about that um, about racism in the United States because we we see it all around us and the street people are uprising and at the same time we see that there are th- threats to kidnap a governor right uh, and possibly do harm. You know, the Confederate flag has made its way all the way up to Michigan um, and to other places. So let's talk about race in America. Do you see any hope? For a united, uh, for a united country, or do you see this as a time in which we really are having to rethink our values? I, I don't. I don't think we'll ever be united. I don't. I don't think it. I don't think it. I don't see it. I don't feel it. I think there are swath, great swaths of, of thinking people where it's a no-brainer, but there's a bigger swath of people who feel, you know, less than who feel, you know, they haven't gotten what they feel is their fair share. I'm talking about white people. I'm talking about people that, you know, live on the, on their own fringes and they they just, they're always going to blame people of color. They just are. And there's always going to be that animosity. And what we have to do is find a way to strengthen our coalition and to try to present them 
as much as possible with the idea that we can all share it and live together. But I don't, I mean, I think there's just going to always be those people who just are just freaked out by, by people of color. That's just the way it is. It's, it's inherent and, 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 and deeply seated in the American psyche. Well, uh, this is a, a just like the other, uh, excuse me, it was just like the other subject we talked about. I, you know, about over 50 years ago, I had the thrill of seeing Martin Luther King speak at Soldier Field. And if you could have told that teenager that I'd be talking about this 50 years later, I would have just been sick to my stomach. So, but my view is, um, Sandra, 50 more years. And the reason I say that, I won't be around to see it. The reason I say that is it's about political power. The power dynamic is going to shift. It is going to be a situation where people who don't respect diversity aren't going to get elected. And they're not going to have political power because there's not enough. Fortunately, there's not enough people who have that attitude. To ultimately, they can, they can cheat in a few elections. They can try to stack the Supreme Court for a couple, 20, 30 years. But I think ultimately people that want to be part of, of, of moving forward in this country will realize it's foolish uh, to try to rule this country with, with what will be a, a, a very uh, increasingly small minority. But damn it. I won't be around to see it. <laughs> Maybe you will Maybe be. So I don't know. Who knows? Why is it, you know, early on were, were white folks, you think, so offended by Black Lives Matter? I mean, it was as if, you know, it's set off firestorms for folks to just say that Black lives shouldn't matter in the United States. I mean, I think that it goes back to white people have centered themselves always and have not understood how to not be centered. So when an, a group of people simply said, see me, we matter, that was too much. That was what is your agenda? You know, there's a there's a thing that is so it's so off and, and so interesting where we people of privilege look at sharing as taking from them. Right. And that has been uh, rooted in who we are. And this dismissal of looking at the complete sort of history of how our country came to be. Um, you're never going to grow unless you do internalized work as a nation, as a person, as anything. And so I think when, when you have an institutional structure that is based on only certain groups were allowed to thrive, um, talent, uh, whether or not you were the best, didn't matter. You were just the person that got to be in charge. And when all of a sudden, people who weren't part of that demography, mostly white male power structure, um, all of a sudden were going to college, actually had ideas, actually uh, asked to be in the mix, and then provided a challenging position to somebody who has unearned power, the lash back is profound. And I think what we are witnessing is a last gasp of unearned power being found out, being seen, and being challenged and losing those challenges. And we're seeing a backlash of that. And going back to Sandy and back to Russ, I feel like it's going to be, we're just 
going to have to marginalize those who are full of hatred and the ideas that come forth from our black and brown leadership and the more we put them in are going to eventually prove to them what the great Paul Wellstone lived his life saying, when we all do better, we all do better. And that is going to be what we're going to have to see. And sadly, it's just something that you have to prove. You know, it's like being in a good relationship. It's like, I don't trust you instantly. You're going to have to prove that, right? And we have to show those people with doubt that they're not going to be left out. On this show, we like to think that we're informed by the past, that it helps us to think about the future. And so I want to play a clip now from fellow comedian Wanda Sykes at the 2009 White House Correspondents Dinner, where she's doing a roast of President Barack Obama. And, and, and I, I must say, Mr. President, I thought that, you know, that when you got into office that you would put a, a swift end to your basketball pickup plan, you know, pick a basketball plan, you know. Uh, I mean, come on, first black president playing basketball, you know, that's one step forward, two steps back. <laughs> and, and really, can, are you any good? I, I bet you think your game is really nice right now, don't you? Yeah, you really think you got good moves, huh? I mean, come on, nobody's gonna give the president a hard foul with the Secret Service standing there. <laughs> He's probably bragging and everything. You should've seen me today, baby, I was balling, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they just stroking your ego like oh mr president you really shook me that time you know <laughs> i thought you were going this way and then i saw secret service do this so i went that way and right to the hole sir right to the hole so liz why weren't Michelle Obama and Barack Obama enough, right? I mean, remember the days when it was just he he talks about arugula, right? Like that was the big controversy, right? He, he wore a tan suit, exactly. Why to, to only think if it were only a tan suit, right? So why weren't they enough? And the kids, such great kids, you know. I mean, really, just I think I think they were threatening to people. I think that that that, that they're, you know perfection and ability to read the room and be so, you know, um, sentient and wonderful and kind and brilliant all at once was very threatening to, to a lot of Americans. Well, who do they think they are? Well, they, they enjoy all the good things in life. Well, how dare they? I mean, that's sort of like the, the backlash. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You know? And on that point, Sandy, about they enjoy the good life, what's so interesting is that they came into the White House with student loan debt, right? Like these were people who were st still paying off their student loan but they debt. Were, debt. But, they, they didn't. but they were still highly educated. They That's were true. still able to, to articulate in a way that many Americans cannot. They were already sophisticated and aiming high for what, what they wanted in their lives as politicians and as people. And I think that is very threatening to many white Americans. And so what's also interesting about that is that in many ways, so the thing that uh, working class and middle class white folks have clung onto is this idea that you can make it in America, you can pull yourselves up by your bootstrap. There's an American dream. Well, in some ways, I mean, look, Michelle Obama grew up on the south side of Chicago. 
Um, Barack Obama, you know, traveled from country to country as his mother was, you know, doing her research and whatnot, and then grew up with his grandparents. And these are not people who had second homes on, you know, the Cape or Martha's Vineyard or, or wherever. So in some ways, they should have been able to resonate, you would think, with white Americans who had been working class and middle class because they certainly didn't grow up with silver spoons in their mouths. Well, they didn't appreciate Jimmy Carter and they didn't appreciate the, the Obamas. True that. Yeah. I think True that. They didn't appreciate the peanut I think farmer. there's something fascinating about um, what, what it means to be smart in America and how that's evolved. It used to be that you would be excited that somebody had a Harvard education and they would be running a department of your government because it seems like they might be the smartest person to do that. And so often the rhetoric that I hear from these folks that we're talking about is that smart people will fool them. It's not, they'll do a good job. It's like uh, your education affords you this position to where you might try to pull something over on me. So now I can't trust you and I need to demonize, you know, the Harvard elite or whatever that is, you know, and I feel like that's a real shame. And part of that, I think, is that um, access to education has not been afforded to everyone. And I think that that's real. And so when you don't have access to um, things that you want for your own betterment, um, who does get the access comes into question, not how the government opens up to you. And I think we need to reverse how that conversation goes. We need a government that provides the access so that you can have that path rather than what's wrong with you that you got that path. I think you're going to try to fool me, you know? And, yeah. And I agree with Sandy too, in terms of how the Obama, who they were and, and who they are in substance. And then what the response was, there's an op-ed that I wrote during um, the time of their administration that re that required me to look into things that I otherwise wouldn't have, such as online hate groups targeting them. I was stunned. I was stunned that there were websites that had been, I mean, I, I was, otherwise would not have known except doing this, this op-ed, but websites devoted to killing their children, um, to, to targeting them. I mean, I thought like, who gets a domain name like this and don't people check these things? And I thought, how horrific for folks who are just simply doing their jobs and trying to lift up the United States. And I think it says so much. And, and even during COVID and this crisis of education, don't we see it when the president says, well, why don't you try some, you know, household cleaning projects, products, and then you see just days later, these poison centers in cities across the country reporting that they had spikes in calls of people drinking poisons over the weekend after the president says just try some household products because they might work in addressing COVID. Well, I'm, I fear there's something even more sinister here, uh, although I agree with what Liz said about the elitism. And it's what I witnessed about uh, being said about Obama in November and December of 2008. So he hadn't even been sworn in. And I went to every one of Wisconsin's 72 counties and held a town meeting. And they had been very pleasant exchanges over 18 years. All of a sudden, these people came in extremely angry, people I'd never seen before, saying that Obama was a socialist, he was going to do this, he was going to do that. I mean, I don't think there's any question in my mind that there was a racial bias to this and uh, that it was that was driving it. Uh, 
much more than the economic collapse that was going on. So all I can say is I'm issuing a warning. If things go a certain way on Tuesday that the people in line might be wishing for, what we're going to see in November and December about a new administration could be very disturbing uh, from this point of view. Uh, you can see the president already talking about Kamala Harris in a way that is clearly trying to play this game again, only this time it's a woman as well. So it gives. Yeah, so it's been race and sex, hasn't it, Russ? Absolutely. Is calling her nasty and all sorts. He has the whole list. Setting up the play. Uh, that's, how, that's, that's, how, that's how he is. That's how his people are. I mean, you look at Amy Coney Barrett, and when, when Kamala was questioning her, I mean, Amy was like, you could just see that the, 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 the dagger shooting out of her eyes. She couldn't believe she was, she was indignant that this brilliant woman, you know, who's, who's running for vice president would dare question her. It was, it's insane. I mean, it's, you know, the gloves are off and it is ugly. So we have got to find our way back in and we have got to get down to business with, with all of this racism and insanity. We've got to like roll up our sleeves and we've got, we've got to get Joe and Kamala elected. That's all I can say. And I'm saying it because I'm not associated with anything and that's what's got to happen. Yeah. And, and I feel too, just, it's really incumbent on white folks. You know, it's really incumbent upon us to like call in our people. You know, Karens exist because they're the ants and the cousins and the moms that we have that say uncomfortable stuff at holiday dinners. And we go, I don't want to, I'm kind of just going to let that one go because I don't want to make any trouble. <laughs> but at some point, you know what? You got to make trouble because if you don't correct the record, you, if you can't stand up to your racist aunt at Thanksgiving, then, you sh then you're not going to stand up for black people on the street. Like, you know what? It's kind of like if Trump can't stand up to Leslie Stahl, how can he stand up to, you know, Kim Jong-un or anybody else. But like, honestly, it's black folks are tired. You guys are tired. You know, you fight this fight, you live this world. And like, if you're going to be a good ally, just call out the shit, call it out. Just call it out because it's, we gotta, we, we cannot be incumbent upon our, our, our black friends and our brown friends to have to defend themselves and live in a world that is constantly assaulting them. All right. So, I mean, so, so we've talked about some pretty dark uh, things that have been, taken place um, over the course of this administration and, and even longer, right? Because, you know, what's happened in this administration um, is only the result of other things that allow it to take place. Um, it's, it's not just the rule of law being attacked and the constitution being attacked and this democracy being attacked uh, by just one party. It, it really happens to be across myriad areas that we get to this particular point, that there are multiple people who get involved in, um, in constraining civil liberties um, and shackling civil rights, right? And so for that reason, I think that people could, be, um, could feel daunted and could be wondering, why the heck am I staying in this line? Um, can anything really change in this country? It's been 400 years of, uh, of racial uh, 
suppression um, of racism in the United States. And we're only now being able to use the term white supremacy in a way that then heads don't explode. I mean, I think that if we talked about the term white supremacy 10 years ago, folks would have said that's just playing the race card. That's just race baiting. That doesn't exist. Look, there's a black president. Uh, but now after Charlottesville, after um, Kenosha was a young kid who goes and guns down three people, after South Carolina, a black church being shot up, after black churches being burned down, not in the 1940s or 50s, but in these recent years, we're now able to speak more plainly and clearly to what these things are all about. But there must be silver linings, right? I mean, there's some form of hope. And so I want to know what that hope is that you see. You know, what is it that you're hopeful about or that you see as being part of change that's taking place? Well, I feel that just the, the, the early voting has been so inspiring this year. It's just been phenomenal. And I have to believe that the majority of people voting early are voting in the right way. They, they are, they're illuminated, they are electrified, they want to make a change. And they don't want to, they don't want to live like this anymore. So I feel that there's, there is great hope. And Joe Biden is somebody who is the everyman. He went to a state college, a state university. He's somebody who's accessible, paired up with a woman who is powerful, a woman of color. I think a lot of great changes will be made and made quickly. I would just say that, again, playing the age card, um, look, when I was in high school, the only sports for women or girls was badminton and water ballet. There were no women in any of these positions. I wouldn't have been on a show like this with you. I wouldn't have looked at the Supreme Court and seen that. It's an enormous change. And I know there's much more to be done. But the change in the course of my lifetime is incredible. And the same thing goes for LGBTQ issues. Look, when I was in high school, nobody even would talk about that. Nobody even knew what it was basically openly. And to have that tra be transformed in the course of my lifetime where it is now the law of the land that, that people can have same-sex marriage. I mean, I know it's hard to look, look into the future and say that, that that can happen on other things, but it can. Yes, some of these things could be reversed, but I think those are two areas where the progress is very real and is going to stay. So that's my cup half full where I almost always end up. And for me, um, it's a couple of things. I feel we got here because we made space for people to tell their stories and then people got to know who they are and learn their lived experiences. Um, white supremacy happened because those stories, you know, we're talking about white supremacy because we're, we're seeing those stories and we're having lived experience. You know, LGBTQ folks, we know them, they're part of our families. We made space for their stories. I'm seeing that more with abortion access as well, where it's like people are living their stories. And for me, one of the great hopes, um, just in a very incidental way, is I grew up in Minnesota in the district that Ilhan Omar represents. And she had a primary this year with a, a black sort of moderate guy who was challenging her um, to watch a conversation about that black man challenging Ilhan and have the debates be about his record, what he would do for Minnesota and challenging 
a Muslim uh, refugee person having a primary happen and then having Ilhan re-win her seat in an 85% white district um, with overwhelming success. To watch that play out says to me, um, we're moving in the right direction. It was really cool to watch. I want to thank you all uh, for being with us today and helping folks who are in lines today before we close, any last words? I mean, those were absolutely great, but any last words to those folks who were in line um, and who may be there for a while? I would just say that I have incredible admiration and love for the, the majority of American people. It's a great country. It's a beautiful country. Um, and I think on a spiritual and a physical level, we we are we it's a turning point and i feel like we're going we're going to go in the right direction i would just say that based on our experience in wisconsin in april they even used the u.s supreme court to try to prevent a supreme court election from going in a certain direction and it failed all their nasty tactics failed so that's what you're doing right now you're making sure they fail and i would just say um if you're heading out to the polls bring water bring a collapsible chair, bring a snack. And if you don't need the chair, you can offer it to somebody else. And if you're sitting there for hours, go to aafront.org and watch some dope comedy to keep you entertained because from noon until midnight, you have some really great people who are just there with you all day. I love that too. We're going to close out today's show with a clip from Sandra Barnhart and her amazing one-woman show, Without You, I'm a Nothing. Friends, thank you for being with us and staying in those lines to vote. Here's Sandra Barnhart. I think it's time to mellow things out a little bit right now. I know you're in the mood because I certainly am. Let's get to know the crowd just a little bit better. What do you say? Do we have any Scorpios in the house? Oh, yes. I feel your sexual energy knocking me off my chair. Virgos, will you please stop cleaning and pay attention to the show? Leos, can we talk about me for a change? Geminis, there's so many of you. Pisces, Cancers, don't bother to show your faces. I can't deal with you tonight. You know, the show is being brought to you tonight by the wonderful Mustang Motel, where you get your closed-circuit TV and everything else that's so wonderful, including the stereo jazz sounds of KKGO. And we've been breaking this song in at a club that no longer exists, but did exist when we broke this song in the Parisian Room with my very, very, very dear friend, Miss Cardilla de Milo. For those of you who remember Cardilla, she did things her way. And we did things our way all the time, darling. And the show also goes out tonight to all of you who enjoy relating to a pretty lady like myself. 
Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests, Senator Russ Feingold, Liz Weinstead, and Sandra Bernard for joining us and being a part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with special guests tackling issues related to an extremely relevant issue. Did we have a fair election? And we'll be joined by Vanita Gupta. It will be an episode you will not want to miss. For more information on what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to visit us at Apple Podcast. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. Rate and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Let us know what you think about our show and support independent feminist media. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Maddie Ponce, Roxy Zal, and Mariah Lindsay. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance.